We all got 2020'd. But I'm not playing the victim card, and I don't want you to either. We're going to finish the year with some practical, actionable episodes to help you get momentum that will take you into a new life now. Don't wait until January. Now is the time to get in the fight. I'm Brian Tome, and this is The Aggressive Life. Welcome to The Aggressive Life. Today, we're going to talk about something that you think about a lot. I mean a lot. We're going to talk about something today that bogs you down or utterly exhilarates you. I I don't care if this topic drains you. I don't care if this topic uh, energizes you. I don't care if you feel like a winner when it relates to this topic. I don't care if you feel like a loser relates to this topic. I I don't care. I know today is going to hit all of us where we are. We're going to talk about money, 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 money. And here, here, this is the real fun thing is we're going to be talking about money on the aggressive life podcast. This is not the conservative life podcast. This is not the make no mistakes that you won't regret later podcast. This is not the live your life. So you won't get audited podcast. This is the aggressive life podcast. Who knows what's going to come out of my mouth as it relates to money or our guest mouth. I got two guests with me today, two dudes I know, and actually two dudes who've helped me with my personal finances. We have Ben Bashir, who's the co-owner of Live Well Capital. He's a certified financial planner, as is his partner, John Brannon, who's a portfolio manager, and he's working on his PhD in retirement planning. <laughs> so so exciting. A PhD in retirement planning. Thank goodness I am married now. <laughs> if I had to uh, find, find a woman today with these kind of credentials, you, it, I don't know how I would sell that. You have never touched a real woman if you told him, if you told him it was a PhD in, in retirement planning. Oh, doctor of retirement planning. A- actually, we're going to keep this here because we're going to get back to this. This is one of the reasons why I, uh, I wanted uh, the these guys and John, because his PhD coursework is fascinating as it relates to finances. And I think a lot of us are going to be just incredibly, incredibly helped and and thankful that we, that we tuned in today. So why do you guys think it is? What, what is the, why, why are finances such a heavy topic? Do you find that with your normal clients? Is it a heavy topic or people always coming to you going, Oh, good. I'm excited to get with the finance guy today. You know, I think the interesting thing when people come in, there's a heaviness when people come into our office about finances, that everybody assumes that everybody else is knocking it out of the park and that they're the only person that's made the mistake they've made. They're the only person that doesn't have the right right emergency fund, hasn't made the right call. And so I think because we live in an Instagram, keep up with the Kardashians world, everybody thinks everybody else is doing great. And they think when they come into an advisor's office, We're going to tell them how terrible they're doing. And the reality is most people, once they open up and start talking about money, realize we're all making mistakes and it's not that hard of a topic to talk about. It's just stepping on the scale, seeing how much you weigh, seeing where you are, and then trying to figure out how to get ahead next. Yeah, I I, I relate to that completely. If I was the average guy or woman listening to the podcast, I might tune out right now. Because much of my financial life has been shame-ridden. I've just felt awful about it. Liv and I, when we got married, 32, 3, whatever the heck years ago it was. Don't tell my wife. I can't remember how long it was. You know, we uh, we did a uh, we did a debt consolidation loan. We, we basically consolidated her debt and my debt in the marriage. <laughs> that was back when you actually had payment books. They still have payment booklets. I mean, I know there's debt payments, but we had like payment booklets for a VCR, payment booklets for for a television, payment booklets for we had two two vehicles that had payments on. We had, and and it, it was just so bad that we ended up living with our parents. There's nothing that tells a 22 year old strapping young guy that you're a weenie boy more than you have to move in with your in laws. Oh my gosh! So we did that, and and. I just have always felt that I don't measure. I still, I still today feel like I don't measure up, even though I make more money today than I ever, I ever thought that I would. What is that about what money does to us? 
I, I think there's two things that happen which make us all feel bad. One is we're in this constant uh, race of not playing our own game, not understanding what we want, what our goals are, what's the life we want. So because we don't know what we want, we compare ourselves to others, which makes us feel bad. And the second thing that happens is the more successful we get, if you are fortunate enough to be successful, your finish line keeps moving further out with what you think is normal. So there's a book called The Psychology of Money where he talks about the goalposts keep moving. And so if we don't set our own finish line with what is an appropriate goal, what's an appropriate retirement, the answer is always more, right? And so I think figuring out what's enough, and there's this healthy line of appropriate ambition. You want to grow your portfolio, you want to save more, but the obsession with always having more, I think, puts people in this spot where they can never actually arrive at any level of financial freedom because the answer is always a moving goalpost, a moving finish line out into the future that they never get to. I find it's not just whatever the retirement number is. I find it's just what your savings is. Like, when I was 22, if I had $1,000 in the bank, if I had enough money for the car insurance payment, you know, two months ahead of time, I felt utterly rich. It was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is utterly amazing. <laughs> it, it is. It was like, wow, this is, this is, this is stunning. And of course I have much more than liquid savings of a thousand dollars right now, but like every mark that I've had of that liquid savings. So I have, you know, I've got well more. I wish I had six figures of liquid savings. I have, you know, five figures, but it's, it's like that number is like if you if I would have seen that number just 15 years ago, I would go, oh my goodness, you you got to be kidding! This is ridiculous. But I look at that number, and I go, ah oh, man, that should be should be a little higher right now. Because you're right, you you always feel like if you're not getting more, something's wrong. And the the whipsaw that people took in March with with what came about because of COVID, all of a sudden people saw a significant hit. Perhaps a digit went away. And that that whipsaw that they feel of seeing a digit disappear from the number, it it hurts. Uh, it's it's possibly back, depending on your allocation and stuff at this point. But but to be tied to the roller coaster that is that, which I think uh, I think a lot of the financial apps, Instagram keeps us socially connected to what we ought to be doing, and a lot of the financial apps that are out there keep us connected to. What did the price do right now? What what was it two minutes ago? Uh, behaviorally, that's not really the type of thing that brings a lot of happiness. Right. Now, I want to get into some of the X's and O's of financial planning for everybody at, er at all income levels. But I just want to first get, get something that's really fresh that I got from you guys. You guys pushed me on. Uh, John, let's talk about you, the geek who who's now touched a real woman. <laughs> you, uh, you're, you're, tell us about your focus in your PhD. This is fascinating. The research was all about how you give away money. And in general, the way that most of us give away money is we're giving it from our checking account or we're giving it from our pockets to the person ringing a bell at the, uh, at the ex exit of a grocery store or something like that. That dollar is after tax. And there are other dollars that we have that is not after tax. The IRS hasn't taken their cut yet. And so the, the research that I did was looking at if we gave in a different way, uh, what does that do as far as stewarding dollars towards end charities or whatever other choice I choose to steward it towards? as opposed to, frankly, stewarding it towards taxes. And it's really about a better way to give. So when I was 20 working, I had no appreciated assets. I gave money from my bank account. Uh, not much. <laughs> and, but my 80-year-old grandmother, she shouldn't give money from her bank account. She ought to be giving money from her IRA. It's a better way to improve how she's given dollars. And that's really what the research was, was just a better strategy for, uh, for stewarding giving. 
Uh, that was that starts to get really boring and really uh, really exciting. I'm bored already right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally bored. You, you ben, asked the you asked yeah. the nerdy question. Yeah, 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 Ben, let's have you talk for a little bit. <laughs> no, that, that is, but but that but that led you into the the spending on experiences that that's actually affected me and my finances. Talk about that. The Harvard research that John and I have talked a lot about is really all about the fact that at a certain, once your basic needs in life are met, uh, the happiest people, and the article is about how do you spend in a way that makes you happy. The happiest people are the people that spend their money on things that are experiences. And so the Brazilian hardwood floors three weeks from now that you bought are just the floors you walk on. And so there is a limited amount of fun you're going to get out of that. The day they're new, you notice... Uh, the next day, the dogs pooped on the floor. It, they're just the floors by day two. And so the research was all about if we're spending money for units of happiness, the best money is spent on experience. The second best money is spent on buying time. Hmm. And so in some ways, if, if we think about our lives a little bit differently, and, and John and I have reframed emergency accounts for somebody. So if you have 30 grand in an emergency fund, and this is an example of what buying time might look like, having 30 grand in an emergency fund might mean that if you're between jobs, you can actually take a job that's a better fit for your family, right? Because you don't have to jump on the first thing that's available because you have an emergency fund. And so what's the internal rate of return on that money sitting in cash? It's infinite if it put you in the right job. And so if you think about it, uh, you think about a version of buying time might be, I take a job that keeps me in town, that's making a little bit less money, that allows me to have 50% more time with my family. Part of the reason you have money is to be able to make decisions like that. Because if you have no money, the irony in having no money is every decision's about money. If you have money, the irony in having money is you can make decisions that aren't about money, right? And so... That's the kind of thing John and I get energized about teaching people as we talk about how to intentionally spend money, not how to spend money just out of impulse. And when you're talking about having money, you're talking about an, an amount that gives you freedom. Yes or yes. no? What, what do you, how? Yes. And, and I think there's a, I think there's, John and I talk about this all the time. I think there's an obsession where we can just always want more, and then there's a practical amount you should have. And, and for us, when we're talking to clients, a practical emergency fund is three to six months of your basic living expenses. If it costs your family $5,000 a month to live, a practical emergency fund would be three to six times that amount, so fifteen to $30,000. That's a practical amount to have as an emergency fund, and we think there's a practical amount to save but obsessing beyond that, yeah. we think is is too much. So, so when you say three to six months of living expenses, that's not three to six months of salary saved up. Correct. Right? You need you need a different emergency fund based on your family's expenses. Because I wouldn't be buying all the Amazon crap I bought right buy right now if I was if I was laid off from work. Hopefully not. Would, right. <laughs> yeah. Which is a big part of you know my, my thing. So right. you're. You're talking about keeping your house, feeding yourself, all that kind of stuff, three to six months. Yes. All right. I got to stop you right now. Let me just say right now, let me just say, this, we're going off topic, but let me just say right now, today is my birthday. I don't want you to wish me happy birthday because by the time you by the time you listen to this, it'll be way past my birthday. But let me just tell you what I hate about modern birthdays. I hate that everybody and their brother can now text me or email me or Facebook me. Happy birthday, bro. I spent the entire morning responding to happy birthday texts from people who I haven't talked to since last year when they sent me a text. But I digress. Where were we? <laughs> Where were we? We're I, do I lost, not text uh, BT on his birthday. Right. That's October right. 1st. Don't do it. Yeah, don't get, do it. Get a life and go live your own life instead of texting me about mine. <laughs> Aggression, aggression, aggression. So that's that's really it's it seems to me that a lot of folks who are really in the financial piece are just making sure nothing goes wrong, and that's not aggressive to me. Um, I, I've got I've got an emergency fund, and 
I'm fascinated by how how much more free that does make me to to be aggressive. I can make some aggressive mistakes that I've got a little, little cushion. I haven't found even before I was able to get to be able to have that short-term savings liquid emergency fund, which I was referring to earlier on my liquid savings, the same thing for me. I find that even if I was making progress, it took the stress off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, even if I just had a thing where I was putting in whatever it was, $500 a month or $100 a month, or I don't, different increments based on when I started getting, getting to a better financial place. Just feeling like I'm doing something. I think that's what, what hurts many of us financially is we hear all the advice. We hear all the things we should be doing. We go, I'm a loser. I'm not doing that. I can't do that. So we just stick our fingers in, in, in our ears like dumb and dumber and go, la, 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 la. I don't want to hear it because I can't do it. What do you have to encourage those of us who are in that spot right now? What can we do to just feel like we're going someplace? I, th- I, th- I think so much of the advice ends up being average. So pay, take a piece of advice. You're supposed to save 20% on average during your working years. That, That's the, asinine. Are you freaking kidding me? That's they say 20%? The, it's 10 to 20%, depending on when you started, whatever. But let's let's think about the different life phases that someone goes through during a working career that arguably started for many 16 and runs all the way to the social security traditional age of 65. It's more than that now. But during that time span, I was making minimum wage, flipping uh, flipping waffles at Waffle House. And then- Smothered and covered. Smothered and covered. Smothered and covered. <laughs> <laughs> and then it goes to a period where I'm I'm uh, a single guy living in, a, living in Chicago and- then I'm married, and all of a sudden, double income, no kids. That 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 dink lifestyle, double income, no kids. I didn't realize how lucrative it was because it didn't feel lucrative. We're we're, we're buying a house, and now all of a sudden, kids are in the in the mix. And one day soon in the future, I hope if, uh, that that the double income, no kids comes back around. You know, and but but in the middle of that, there's this expensive period where. Or you have a lot of lives <laughs> feeding uh, that need need clothes that need feeding, and to adhere on any given month to the recommendation of twenty percent savings, that's an average. There are times where I need to be above average, and there are times where I need to be below average on that savings piece because I have other priorities. And you're tr- effectively just trying to end up at average. There, there, may, there, may, be a, <laughs> average there may be a phase of life where starting at 2% is something. And I think that's the, that's the piece that gets missed is people talk about compound interest, but there's a compound interest on behavior. You learn to save money. You learn to live on less. You learn to delay gratification. And you start at maybe 2% of your income, and maybe you move to 4% of your income, and then maybe you move to 6% of your income. So John and I's advice in general is to start somewhere. Uh, I think people obsess with starting at where they need to end up, but starting somewhere, and for some families, a win might be saving 2% of their income. Our other belief is you have to automate it. You know, our mutual uh, friend, Brian Wells, had the term, force the big stuff. So automate your saving, treat it like it's an expense, force it out of your account. And so it might be a win for somebody listening to this podcast to fund their 401k at a 5% level. A lot of 401ks have matches. So a lot of times if you fund at 5%, your company's also putting some money in for you. So the reality is it's starting somewhere and it's automating it. And it's not obsessing over where you're starting. It's obsessing over the fact that you are starting. Mm. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, I, I said before that's asinine 20 percent. I think I'm saving over. I'm saying over twenty percent right now. You are. Yeah, we, we, we track it. Yeah, well, you yeah, are. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so you are asinine. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just putting myself in the. I'm putting myself in the, in the seat of the twenty year olds, the thirty year olds here. At least for me, 20, 30, 20, 30 with three kids, and and that I, I, there's I just couldn't do twenty percent. There wasn't any way. So I would just. What I would do, and I would hear that, I would just ah, forget it. I'm not, I'm not doing anything, any of that stuff. And I just want, I, I want, if you're going to be aggressive, being aggressive doesn't mean you are doing everything right. It means you're starting to go in the right direction. 
That's what being aggressive is. It doesn't mean I've arrived. It's like I'm pushing. I'm going. So this is an aggressive move that Ben just mentioned. If you're feeling that your savings aren't right, make something automatic. Pay yourself first. That's a good one. Let's get back to this. <clears throat> I love this phrase you used. Units of happiness. Money buys units of happiness. Talk more about this. Well, I think one thing we don't put enough thought into because you tend to, if you look at the way we shop for a house, you look at the way we shop for a car, we don't look at the fact that all of our decisions in life are cumulative. So if you think about it, you go to a mortgage broker and they tell you how much house you can afford. You go to a car dealership and they run the financing and they tell you how much car you can afford. And we don't really think about what is the impact of how much margin I'll have left if I do all these things. And it's really about intentionally spending your money and having an intentional, aggressive look at the life I want to have two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. And I think the reality is we don't have money to actually buy units of happiness if we've been unintentional in our spending ahead of time. And so the thought is we, we talk about a really simple rule um, called the 50-20-30 rule. Your fixed expenses shouldn't be more than 50% of your income. Your uh, savings should be 20% and you should have 30% left for discretionary. And so if you set up your life in that way intentionally ahead of time, you can actually be intentional about your spending. What are your hobbies that you enjoy doing? Is it uh, a pool for the kids? Is it a house where you're, uh, you know, in some ways there are all these things that you mix experience with materialism. Like we actually have a, a house that is probably some would consider on the upper end, but we have it because I want to be the kind of family where my kids and their friends are playing at my house. And so that for me, if I'm thinking about five years from now, I want the kind of experience where we're all together. And I want the kind of house where other, where other kids are coming over. So I'm intentional about the future happiness I want, those units of happiness, and I'm organizing my financial plan around uh, heading in that direction of that so life. So you're not buying a house that tells yourself I've arrived and is bigger than the next guy's. You're buying time with your kids. You're buying extended fun time with their friends at your house because you don't want them to go to someone else's house. That's what you're buying. Yeah, and it's a slippery slope, right? Like John and I talked about this house before we financially counsel each other. So I think you got to check your motivation. So is this house about ego? Is this house about the fact that I want more family time? Uh, And so I think when we do things, we need to have a self-check on what our motivations are ahead of time. And for me, when we really got to the bottom of it, Lindsay and I, as we're talking about this house, this purchase, it was about the kind of family we wanted to be in the future, not about the size of the mortgage or whatever. It still has to make financial sense, but it's a reframe of the life you want versus what's the thing that I can afford the most to impress people around me that I don't even like anyway half the time, the people that text me on my birthday. Like, like yes! you. Yes! Know, uh, Stop texting I don't, I don't me on my birthday! About them. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's a, it's a tough life for BTs, getting too many texts <laughs> on his damn birthday. Too, too many people like me. Too, too many people actually want to love me and make me feel good. I don't want that. I don't feel like crap, like you've forgotten about me. That's what I want. <laughs> oh, that is... um. That that's 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 really good. We we have to decide how we want to live our life. And you just dropped another another one that I don't think people grapple with. You share finance with one another. Why is it that we don't let other people into our financial lives? I know for me, I'm not buying a new motorcycle without my friend knowing about it and how much it's costing. I'm not buying. I'm I'm not. Um, I, I've been looking at putting a pool at my house. And, uh, you know, how many, how many times have you and I talked about, is it right for me to do a pool? And uh, just buy the pool. <laughs> <laughs> but like, uh, you know, the, the Bible says there's victory in the counsel of many. There's victory in the counsel of many. And I meet a lot of people who are in really difficult financial spot because they refuse to get anyone's counsel. They just wanted what they wanted. And now they're paying the price, uh, a hugely aggressive financial move is to tell somebody else about your money. Ask somebody else's opinion before you get into that car payment, right? Totally agree. 
but there is a secrecy uh, that we all have about money. Uh, my gosh, share your uh, share your financial stuff with even within your family. Within spouses, sometimes don't talk about money. They have Absolutely. separate finances. Blows my mind because we're so intricately related <laughs> in within marriage, and the need for spouses to come together and talk about money. It's hard. There are different viewpoints that you'll find and on things you'll uncover there within that conversation within marriage, and it's uh, it's it's healthy. My wife and I are coming up on ten years, and and we're getting. And she he- won't let you buy a motorcycle. Just noted, noted. I know. I did not say that, and I'm in trouble now. <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> man. man! Accountability. This just changed the world right now. She actually uh, did give me permission, but uh, that sweet little girl that I have at home, I realized, man, I I, I just don't want to do it. Three-year-old daughter. So you're Beautiful. trying to say BT doesn't care about his kids yeah, by having yeah, a motorcycle? Say here, right? I think they're grown now. <laughs> I think they're on their own. Oh, yeah, so they're, they're good. Grown, they're they good. don't matter to me. You're and never done parenting. Only when they're, they're young does God really care about exactly. them. Do I care about them? This is, I read that somewhere. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> I, I think. To, I think to summarize, whether whether it's marriage or whatever, um, bad decisions get made in the dark. I think the reality is, if you look at people that are constantly doing stuff in secrecy. Um, you get out of check. And, you know, the great article I was reading the other day that people don't know, Bernie Madoff, when he started stealing money, was worth $100 million, right? Uh, so he was, he had made it, right? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know what made it means, but, you know, if he had counsel, if he had friends, if he had perspective on what mattered, he had perspective on his finish line, perspective on where he was, and actually had transparency in relationships, that actually stops a, a $20 billion fraud, right? He, there was a $65 billion fund. He stole $20 billion. But it's we don't look at the—what what was the cause of that? Uh, if he has perspective, the whole fraud never happens, right? He had already made it. And what, what allowed him to steal all the money is because he was so legitimate before he actually stole the money. And so it's, this, it's kind of the silliest thing that's obvious is good decisions get made inside of relationships, right? Inside of transparency, not outside of transparency and outside of relationships. There's a big difference between being transparent and seeking the counsel of others and bragging and comparing yourself to others. Um, so there is a difference. It's not about asking everybody in your life about something, but I think all of us, whether it's an advisor, whether it's a coach, whether it's a friend, whether whether it's a spouse, I think should check ourselves before we're doing stuff, before we're buying stuff, running ideas by other people, because what it does is it seasons the idea a little bit. You get some perspective, and it keeps you from doing just crazy stuff later in the dark because you've lost perspective on what really matters. Yeah. So we're, we're getting a theme here of Countercultural aggressive counsel. Uh, one is spend money on units of happiness, which is experiences. You know, not nec- if you want Brazilian hardwood floors, and you can that, that's okay. You're not down on that, but but when we go on a vacation, that money works really hard for us, doesn't it? Absolutely. Because we have the time that we get to spend fantasizing and planning it. You know, I'm, I'm working on a trip to Alaska. Bunch of stuff I'm looking to do up there. I'm I'm already planning it, and I haven't spent the money yet. But boy, it's already working hard for me because right now I get diversions every day. Look at the maps and figure out where we're going to salmon fish and where we're going to float plane into and all that stuff. And you said we. It's relationship exactly. is in there as well. You're not going to Alaska alone, right? I get that. When I'm not spending on my experiences, I get all the pre work that's that's a vacation because I like to plan it. We think about it. And we talk about it. I get the actual thing itself. And I get the memories afterwards. I get all. I, I never get that from a watch I buy. The second, I think, countercultural thing we're looking at right now is bring people into your money. Do not be on your own. What, what else? What, what's some other countercultural aggressive things that you counsel people with? So one simple thing, we talked about it earlier, and we almost kind of made fun of it earlier, but the number one predictor of your future net worth is what percentage of your income you save. It's so simple, and it's ultimately the only thing you can control. I can't control what the stock market does. I might be able to make great moves over the long run, but I can't actually control whether it's up or down today. And so if you look at what is going to predict your future 
net worth. It's what percentage of your income you save. It's really simple. And if you're not saving any right now, don't be discouraged by it, but just know you'll never, ever hear it on TV. The reality is you need to learn how to live on less than you make and save it. Wait, 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 wait. Do what? <laughs> it's really complicated. Live on less than I make. Very complicated. Wow. You got to go to school for like eight yeah. years. Wow. John, John got a PhD yeah. in this. It was like, wait a right. second. At the end, we need to spend less yeah. than and, we make. <laughs> and, huh. and there's actually two ways to do it. I mean, John and I are very different. Um, John is actually way more disciplined than me. And John is what I call a micro-budgeter. He and his wife go through their budget. On a monthly basis, they figure out what they're going to spend, what they're going to save, how they're going to do it, and they stick to that budget. My family are what we call macro budgeters. So I pick, I do it in reverse. How much am I going to save? What percentage of my income? How much am I going to give away? How much am I going to be generous with? And then we live on what's left. Because in my family, we don't really have the discipline to budget. We just have the discipline to live on what's left. And regardless of which way you do it, there's no right way or wrong way. But you got to pick one of the two, and if you're not the type that's going to track your spreadsheet, then you need to uh, pay yourself first in the way our family does it. If you're the type that's going to love budgeting and doing the spreadsheet each month, you can do it that way. But ultimately, we're leading people to the exact same place. You need to be saving a percentage of your income for the future, and it's the number one thing that's ultimately going to matter, and it's the number one thing you're almost never going to hear in the financial news. Yeah, the the only way I actually got ahead savings, we talk about setting your finish line, is Lebanon came to place it. Okay, we're we're done. We're done. We don't need to buy more new clothes than we buy right now. We're we're not going to upgrade our vacations. We're we're not going to upgrade our cars. And when our cars break, we're going to you know get a new car. But we're not we're not saying. Okay, we've driven a Chevy. Our next thing is going to be a Caddy, or next thing is going to be a Tesla. Like the kind of cars we have right now is the kind of cars we have right now. We're not going to all that stuff. So what that that does is every raise that I would get, which we all get raises, eventually that incremental money goes to savings and givings. That incremental money doesn't go anywhere else. It goes to, and that's how we were able to get the head. You 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 counseled me really well on that. Both you guys did of. Money, how do you put money is like, well, why, why retell your your illustration? You tell the illustration. Which is, it's putting a cap on lifestyle. It's like, am, am I really buying another unit of happiness with the, with, with the Mercedes versus, versus the Chevy? Ah, I don't have any problem with either one of those. I love them both. They give me from A to, a to B. They're, <laughs> they're wonderful. But from a lifestyle standpoint, does every single aspect need to creep up? Uh, or do I need to be intentional about the areas that I want to allow to creep up? If it is uh, spending more money on the pool so that grandkids come over and you get to spend more time in relationship with the next generations and you're providing a space like, oh my gosh, let those costs creep uh, where it makes sense to. And if they come at the cost of the, the car that you're driving from A to B, the transportation, Great, you're yeah. buying it. You're you're robbing. You're taking from one pocket and putting it putting it into another area that's important. John's making a great point. He calls it. I love the term lifestyle creep. Lifestyle creep will happen if you don't automate it. So if you don't have a way that it's automatically going to do something for you, automatically going to go to an investment account, automatically going to go to giving, automatically going to go to your four hundred one k, your lifestyle will naturally creep up. Like John and I went to college together. Um, 20 years ago, we would have been fine sharing a Holiday Inn room with five dudes. I'd sleep in the bathtub. Uh, and so when you get more money, things start becoming different normal. I wouldn't do that anymore. All of a sudden, you want your own bed. Yeah, you want your own bed, I, right? I, I want a different bed than and you. And so there's a certain amount of lifestyle creep that is healthy, right? But when you get to a certain level, the whole point is the fact that if you figured out what's really important to you and what's the life you want to intentionally live— then you need mechanisms that when a raise happens, you have savings that automatically goes. And maybe it's, we're a big fan of enjoying, enjoying the fruits of your labor. So maybe you save half of the raise. Maybe uh, you do something intentionally fun with half the raise. People over and over again say to us, I can't believe how much money I'm making and 
I don't know where it goes. I have as much money. I have as much extra money as I did when I was making half of what I'm making now. And so everybody has this phenomenon and the fact that if we don't automate it, if we don't have a plan, we will find something we need. <laughs> and uh, cons- we live in a country where it's very easy to consume. We're in a global pandemic and you can still get stuff delivered to your house the same day. Uh, and so I think it's, it's just, it's healthy to know that we are hardwired to be consumers and we need to do stuff intentionally to battle that. And so our natural state will be to spend whatever level of income we make. And so if we don't put natural uh, barriers in there, pay yourself first, automatically give. John and I laugh about before we both gave automatically at church. You know, the basket comes around and you have like your your alligator arms out and you don't put any money in, right? Uh, but when you automate it, it's not painful because you've made the decision ahead of time. And so all financial planning is, is prioritizing what's important and making every decision ahead of time so you don't have to make it in the moment. Because when we have to make the decision in the moment, we make terrible decisions. When we have to save money in the moment, when we have to be generous in the moment, we end up making the wrong decision. But when we prioritize what's important and automate it ahead of time, we actually take the pain away. You were, John was mentioning it earlier. We take the friction out. Right. And so when you take the friction out, and it's just automated, you find a way that, to actually just live on what's, what's left. Well, and it's also the aggressive thing to do. Passivity, again, is just waiting to hope it, hope it works out. But when you say, no, I'm going to make it work out because I'm going to punch in the numbers that says this gets sucked out of my, my, my account immediately to this place, that's, that's an aggressive move. Now, the most aggressive move financially, I think the most powerful move financially— we haven't talked about it yet, but we'll spend a couple minutes on here, is giving. And um, I'm not playing the pastor card, though that is my that is my day job. I'm not, I'm not playing even the Bible card, though I read the Bible, and the Bible is very, very clear on this. I'm playing the human behavior and what I've seen work with person after person after person. You talked about your 50-30-20 split. I believe that first 10%, needs to go outside of yourself and it goes, needs to go to God. That first 10%. In fact, Robert Kiyosaki in his old book, remember that Rich Dad, Poor Dad? Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating book. Uh, he guy had, had no spiritual moorings at all, or at least none that he ever talked about, said that. He actually talked about the principle of tithing because there was something, I think he put it in the cosmos that it comes back to you. I think he might have talked about karma. And I'm not even saying it comes back to you as much as when I make that my first thing as my minimum, it helps me be more diligent with the other 90%. I yeah. waste less money. Or what, 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 why is, I, th- I know you guys are both on the same page. Why is the generosity so frequently opens up the door financially for people? So one interesting thing, uh, we do believe generosity should be hardwired into planning. So when we talk about 50, 20, 30, it's in the 50, That's right? Okay. So um, because we, we have a lot of, uh, our John's getting his PhD in generosity, we, we have focused on this as a firm. Uh, and so we've spent a lot of time thinking about this. And so the way, the way we think about it is giving, if, if we take away, uh, I don't know where every listener is, but if we take away the spiritual blessing of giving and we just suspend that for a second, uh, John and I do believe that there's a spiritual blessing of giving and that might be for a different day. But if we're talking about just the practical benefit of giving, I think it teaches people that it's not all about me, right? When you actually give, you're actually saying, my life is not all about me. And when I give to things outside myself, there is a part of it that makes me understand how to be a better steward of the 90% that's left or the 80% that's left. There is a psychological change when I can set aside money for others that actually changes my behavior on what I need. And... John and I have tracked our clients, um, and if we, if we could break confidence, we have everybody's tax returns, so it would be really interesting. So <laughs> maybe at some point in time at the end of our careers, we'll break confidence and we'll, we'll release the research. We will not you do could that. just say, this is, <laughs> this is client A, yeah. this is client B, this yeah. is client— John, in case there are, our— There case, are ways to do this differently. Yeah, yeah we, we, we would do this in a compliant, <laughs> compliant way that honors everyone. Yeah. But— um, 
if we're, if we're if we really look at it, and we know anecdotally, we haven't put pen to paper on it. But our clients that are generous have more money, uh, tit for tat, than somebody that isn't. So if you control for everything else, you control for income, you control for net worth, you control for opportunity, you control for company. When we look at our clients. And we look at Which what is, is how many roughly? Just give a name, like roughly how many? Uh, if you if you look at our whole firm, uh, the ones John and I manage are about three hundred. Our whole firm might have eight hundred clients. Okay. Um, so we have three hundred people that I say we're doing life with. We're they have something come up. They're they're texting me on 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 my cell phone to see see what's going on on, your birthday. on my birthday. Hopefully not. Um, but when we look at it, and we look at the people that have decided to be generous. There is a spiritual blessing, but there's also a practical blessing on the fact that you've learned to live on less. And if we look at our clients, we were talking about it. In some ways, John and I have the benefit of the fact that we get to see how everybody's life works out. I have clients that are 35, 45, 55, 65, 75, 85, 95. We have clients all over the, all over the board, and we know what's worked. And so for me, what I'm modeling and what Lindsay and I are modeling our life after is saving 20% and giving 20%. And we don't always hit it every year, but if I've looked at our clients, and, and our clients are reasonably affluent, so this is not going to be for anybody listening. This is not going to be the model for everybody. But if I looked at, at the, the lives that I would want to emulate in my clients because I've seen how it's worked out, 20% generosity for us is a number that we see over and over and over again in our client base. And one of the things I also like about— And you're finding out that they're— lifestyle, their happiness, their finances are better for it. Absolutely. You're saying you're, you got 300 people you're looking at and you're just going, the data is very clear. Someone who prioritizes generosity actually is better off financially. They're better off financially and they're happier. That was the third thing I was going to say earlier. It's experience, it's buying time and it's generosity. And if you look at spending your money on those three things, I knew we were going to get to generosity, so I didn't mention it earlier. But ex- experience, time, and generosity, that is like the happiness triangle right there where if you're spending your money in those ways, those people are happier and they're actually better off financially. So I know, John, you have, you have more to add to this topic. Well, but it, I, I am in total agreement. I live my lifestyle like this. And yet, at the same time, when I write the check, when I make the gift, whatever it is, it, it does still co- come at a cost. I rep- I recognize that there are that there is the possibility for me to say I worked hard for that dollar I shouldn't give it away I might need that dollar one day in the future whatever it may be and, and just be honest with you that 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 thought crosses my mind of course and that's one of the benefits to automating it is I'm a little less inclined to have that have right. that to right. to react to that thought right. because because I know that I can uh, my human emotion one day at at the moment of gift might might freak out and I don't I know that's not where I want my heart to be so I'm overriding it yeah. And, and generosity is influenced by our experience because I think some of us, everybody, all you know is your own experience. And your experience influences your behavior a ton. Uh, the psychology of money talks about this a lot. If you grew up in an environment where there was never enough, no matter what, in the back of your mind, you're going to have somewhat of a scarcity mindset, right? Uh, and it's very difficult to overcome. But being generous is overriding to John's point that scarcity mindset of there's never going to be enough. If I give this money away, I can need it. And what we've seen on the back end of studying hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of clients, there's nobody that says at 65, I wish I hadn't been generous and I wish I hadn't saved so much money. It just never comes up. We hear all kinds of other regrets. And in some ways in financial planning, which I'll I'll talk about if we have time for it, in some ways financial planning is us helping people manage their regrets. What are the regrets you don't want to have? And one simple version of, of it, if we have a second for it, is we think there's two types of regret for our clients that are retired. And there's one type of regret that I'm, I got to the end of my life, and I wasn't a good steward of my finances, and I ran out of money, and I needed help. I was always chasing the next dollar. I ran out. I prioritized the wrong thing. I wasn't a good steward. And then there's an entirely different kind of regret 
for the guy that dies with $10 million that never did anything, he didn't give his kids anything. He wasn't generous. He didn't invest in relationships. It was always about building the pile bigger. And so if you're dealing with a great planner, a great friend, a great coach, what they want to do is put you right in the middle of those two regrets, right? Um, I don't want to make it all about dying with the biggest pile, and I don't want to be a bad steward and run out. But the reality is if I can live between those two circumstances, and we think a lot of times good financial planning is the difference between your income and your ego, Mm. right? If you look at uh, how do I live in a way that I can be, uh, I can drive the best outcome without ultimately making it about making the biggest pile of money I have when I die. Yeah. All right. Are we ready for the lightning round? <clears throat> now, <clears throat> I know we don't have two people in here, so I can only do one person for lightning round. I'm going to pick Ben. John, is that okay with you? Do you want to? Do you want to like study up on actuarial tables you, or you, anything you, like you that to do you for your PhD? Nerdy, you can't put nerdy stuff in a lightning round. It just doesn't uh, no, fit. I'll <laughs> add any colored commentary yeah. if, I, if I want to uh, step yeah, okay, into the lightning can, round. But the lightning round, you can do color commentary like a sentence. Okay, that's fine. You can you can chip in a sentence because that's sentence. the whole point of a lightning round. It's a, he gets a sentence. If you want to put that in something, you can. Are you ready for it? Ready. Ready. All right. Here we go. My car just died. Now what? The reality is this is the purpose of an emergency fund. So it's be prepared ahead of time. If you don't have the money, I'd negotiate with the body shop because very often we find people don't negotiate. I'm stepping in. My car died this week. Emergency fund matters. Social capital. I had to get some. I had to get a friend to drive me to work. There you go. It makes it, uh, <laughs> you, got, you got a couple of different aspects. Yeah, Come go. back to friends. There's money and there's there's money Emergency capital and there's friends. social capital. Right. I had that today. I had I just had that same thing today myself. Yep. All right. Second mortgage on the house. We think in general it's not the best thing to have a second mortgage, but it's better debt than other kinds of debt. Finally got a big boy job. Do I go buy a house? Maybe. It depends on what your goals are for the future. We believe if you're going to own a house for less than five years, it makes sense to rent. Do I need a financial planner? We think a financial planner is more about helping you manage yourself in the future you want than it is about managing the market. And if you need accountability and you want help with living the life you want, you definitely need a financial planner. The one thing where if every American did this, it would improve their financial lives. Save 20% of their income. Biggest hero when it comes to finances. My biggest hero when it comes to finances is Warren Buffett because of his patience, not because of the guy he is or the life he's lived, but he's been more patient than anybody else. He's made 99.9% .9 of his wealth after age 50. And people wow. think he's the best investor, but he's really just the most patient investor. 99.99 .99 after 50. 99.9. .9. So one less nine, but 99.9. .9. Well, that reminds <laughs> me. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go off scripture for a minute because we talked about savings versus the market and everything. And not to bring up a polarizing topic, but President Donald Trump, at least he's still president as of, as of, as our, our, our recording is tax. His tax returns were published recently, and, you know, what did we learn? Old, old Donald didn't know much about business. At least it doesn't look that way because he's not paying much taxes. He's not making any money. And that reminds me of the, uh, the, oh, the Fortune or Forbes came out with an article a couple years ago where they took the amount of money that he was he inherited from his dad, and they forecasted for if he had just stuck it in an index fund or if he kept building hotels, and he would have been way ahead financially if he just saved his money in an index fund. Are you, are you familiar with that, that whole thing? Yes. It is amazing how complicated people will make things look in an, in an um, attempt to make themselves look wealthy, when a lot of times the simpler strategy actually wins. And so in finance, one of the things John and I always struggle with is sometimes the sophisticated, complex thing is not the thing that actually makes sense. It's the, 
what are the daily disciplines of doing things the right way and having patience over time? I call it an iron butterfly. It's beautiful. It's a great complex plan. It doesn't fly. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah that's good. <laughs> Biggest money waster in the world? Spending money to impress others. Favorite budgeting app or technology that can help? John and I have talked about this. We think it's we think it's not an app. It's personal accountability with a human. Wait a minute. It can't be done on the phone? Yeah. <laughs> Wait, it can't be punched in. I have to actually know somebody and talk to somebody? Yes. Oh, gosh. Unbelievable. Tips on starting an uncomfortable conversation about money. So what we find in families is they avoid them at all costs. I think the reality is my tip is knowing that if you don't have the conversation, the conversation is going to come at a time where you're not in control of the conversation. So being aggressive and having it when you don't have to have it so it's not forced on you later when you do have to have it. I was going to say one glass of wine, not two. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> 1.5. We'll, 1. we'll, we'll settle somewhere, in the middle. Somewhere in there just to start talking, but not too much. <laughs> guys, this has been this has been really great. Uh, if someone wants to follow up with you or they want to see you on social media, I, mean, I don't know, do financial planners even have social media accounts where you just post numbers or something? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know. This is generally the time when someone lots pumps of, their social media feed or if someone wants to follow up with you or see what's going on, any, any way they can do that, just give yourself an advertisement here. Yes, so our, uh, our firm is it, here in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, we have 18 team members. We steward about $600 million in client assets, which we take very seriously. And uh, we can be found at livewellcapital.com. The theme of our firm is in finding the life you want. And it's not in playing somebody else's game. It's not in comparing yourself to somebody else. It's finding the life you want, unlocking generosity, and figuring out a way to actually live well and defining what that means for you. So that's a little bit about our firm. All right. Hey, it's been great having you with us today. We've got a lot of good stuff. Thanks for Thanks for pouring into us. And that concludes another episode of The Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. For more aggressive living, head over to bryantome.com. Get signed up for the mailing list to get regular shots of positive aggression sent straight to your inbox. And while you're there, you can also find articles, podcasts, and books. I'm also active on Instagram. Search Brian Tome. Special thanks to the band judges for the music. Aggressive Life with Brian Tomes, a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.